Well, good morning. Today, we are going to continue with our Mission Impossible series. From back in December was when we started this series. But then the holidays hit, and then we had our uh, Pastor John's full church sermon on consecration. Um, So we want to just kind of bump this until now. But this is going to require some memory on your part from December. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably don't remember what you had for breakfast. So this is probably hard to go back that far. But if you remember, the core question of the Mission Impossible series was this. Can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? And in the first set of sermons, I suggested to you, and here's a little review, I suggested to you that bridging the culture is not our primary mission. Our primary mission is to declare Christ as Savior and to declare Christ as Lord. This is our number one mission. Now, we do this in a way, we hope, that engages the culture, that respects the culture, that offers it to the culture in a way that they can receive. But when we do something or move towards something like saying our mission is to bridge the culture, if that becomes our primary mission, then we've actually accepted what we have been calling a shadow mission. And that is something that has some value. A shadow mission has value. There's some good behind it. But when the shadow mission becomes the mission... Then, remember, we talked about just the trajectory being one degree off, but as you go further and further out, you get further and further from the gospel. And so even though it might be a good thing, if it's just one degree off and that becomes the focus, then you end up losing the gospel. And when it comes to the culture, it's easy to do that because we often find ourselves, we're trying to make this bridge, that we either try to appease the culture or we adjust the gospel to appeal to the culture. But appeasement and appealment, neither of these are our mission either. And so these shadow missions, though they have value and they, they shouldn't be ignored, they cannot become the mission or Jesus will, will find reason to rebuke us. And this is what we've been seeing in the churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 where Jesus is walking amongst his seven churches in Asia Minor. He's offering praise and rebuke, encouragement and criticism for the ways that the local churches are conducting themselves. So we we really have a picture of Jesus quite literally walking amongst his churches saying, well, I see this is good, but this is a problem. This is good, but this is a problem. This needs to be fixed. This is an encouragement. When we looked at Ephesus, we saw that they had been chasing the shadow mission of doing all the right things. They had all the right things going. They had the, we might say in our modern day, they had the right programs. They had the right signage. They had the right steeple. They had all the right things going for them. They even had the right theology on their paperwork. But none of it was being done out of love for Christ anymore. It was being done for the wrong reason. And we might say, well, it was still the right thing. But remember, when Jesus walked through the church of Ephesus, he threatened to remove their lampstand. It was such a problem that they were doing the right thing for the wrong reason or that they had lost their first love, to use the language in the letter to Ephesus. In Pergamum, we saw that they tried to engage their culture by being permissive. Pergamum seemed to wrestle with two strains of... Um, alternate teaching in the church that pushed against the truth of the gospel by mixing other beliefs in with the gospel. 
But the Pergamum church said, oh, that's okay. A little bit of syncretism here, a little bit of antinomianism here. Those things are fine. We'll mix those in and we'll sort of be very permissive of all these sort of different variants of the gospel, even if they contradicted the gospel. And Jesus said, there is no place for that and warns them of impending judgment. Which brings us to today's church and today's shadow mission. But before we get to that, I should mention that what I just told you was like two and a half hours worth of teaching in six minutes. But if you're wondering, well, what were those teachings like? You can go to our website. You may have never been to our website. It looks like this. And that's the church website. At the top right or top middle, you'll see campuses. If you click on that and then click on Wilmington, you'll get this screen. And in this screen, you'll see a button for, in a second, you'll see a button for messages. So you click on messages. And then once you clicked on that, you will see that we have people in our church that um, post every sermon that's preached on this campus in the order that it's preached, even if it was already preached at the other campus. So if you keep track, if you're coming to this campus and you go to our messages, you'll hear what's been being preached, has been being, has been being preached? Has been being preached. I'm an English teacher. I can say that, right? Has been being preached here. But down here to the left, you'll see the Mission Impossible button. If you click on that, you can get to the first three sermons of this series and also all the sermons that have been preached um, in the last year or two at this campus. Okay, multimedia plug over. Let's look at the church in Thyatira. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. As you do that, I am going to offer you a scenario or two to think about. You're sitting at lunch with a friend. This friend is not a follower of Christ, but he's been watching the news and he's been hearing a lot about the importance of tolerance in our culture. And he's also been hearing a lot about how intolerant some groups are, particularly Christians. And so your friend, knowing you are a Christian, turns to you and says, but you're a Christian and you're tolerant, right? What do you say? Do you say, well, yes, I am tolerant. Or do you say, no, I am intolerant. Or do you ask for the check and try to get out of there as quickly as possible? Another scenario. You're at your YMCA and you've struck up a friend, a friendship with a woman in your spin class. You're hanging out afterwards, drinking your energy drinks, mixing your juice or whatever, whatever people who do spin do after they've spun. (laughs) She says to you, Oh, when you tell her about this campus, how wonderful it is that we meet each morning, each Sunday, 10, 15 a.m. at the D.C., she says, well, I, I used to go to church, but they seem pretty, pretty narrow-minded to me, pretty intolerant. Does your church teach tolerance? What would you say? Do we teach tolerance? Certainly we don't teach intolerance, do we? I'm hopefully today I'm going to offer you some help in answering those questions, but not till the end. So you're going to have to stay for the whole sermon. Sorry, those of you who are hoping to get a head start on the game. Um, you have to stay for at least 27 or so more minutes. We'll get back to that. 
For now, Thyatira. Thyatira is positioned in Scripture right after the letter to the church at Pergamum, and it's also geographically right after Pergamum on that that trip that the messenger would have taken from Ephesus to Smyrna up to Pergamum, back down around to Thyatira on that sort of delivery loop that we suggested he would have taken in delivering all of these letters. Thyatira receives the longest letter of the seven churches, but it was likely the smallest of the seven churches and the least politically important. Thyatira had the the lowest level of political importance, but it did have significant economic uh, influence. In modern excavations of the church of, uh, of Thyatira, of the city of Thyatira, we have found that it was dominated by a large number of guilds. Most cities at this time would have had guilds, but as one commentator notes, the trade guilds were probably more organized in Thyatira than any other ancient city. So Thyatira and guilds would have been very much married together in the culture. Guilds are complicated. Guilds are oriented around your trade, So you may have had a cloth-making guild or a bronze-making guild. Here's a picture of what would have been like the grain or the farmer's guild. It was somewhere like a business union, a bunch of people who did the same thing that would work together for the good of that part of the economy. So it's not unlike a trade union today. But it was more than that. It was part union. It was part fraternity. It was part friendship. It was part welfare system and it was part religion. So these guilds undergirded much of the society at the time. Your friends would have been from your guild. Your family tree probably came down through the guild. Your social services, shockingly, didn't come from Rome. They weren't really interested in your well-being, necessarily. It was your guild. So you would pay dues to a guild, and when you retired or when you needed sort of help, of some sort, the guild would work together to assist you and your family. Guilds could hold property, so you might have a wedding at the guild or a party at the guild, and all your guild friends would come together. But the challenge, of course, in this is that if it is part religion, the guilds each also had a god or a goddess. So were you to go to a feast at the guild, you would eat food that had been sacrificed first to this god or goddess. And now it's being handed to you. And then these parties, these feasts, generally degraded into some sort of sexual debauchery by the end of the time. And that was part of their understanding of this worship of the goddess. And this was part of um, the Roman understanding of worship of the emperor. So this sort of um, sexuality mixed in with worship was, was common at the time, and it was a stress and a strain on Christians. So here you are, a Christian who's been part of this guild that your family, your father and your grandfather, you've always been part of the farmer's guild. And they've always supported you, and they've always cared for you, and they've always helped you, and it's your friends, and it's your family, and now you're a Christian. Well, you can see the struggle. You can see the challenge that you would face, because the guild was everything. It was your employment. It was your friendship. It was your retirement. It was your health care coverage. It was your livelihood. It was everything. So to push against the guild 
was to take a significant risk on multiple levels. So the challenge for Christians was real. Keeping that in mind, look with me at Revelation 3, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. Is it Revelation 2? Did I have the, sorry. Revelation 2, verse 18. That's what I said. We'll have to fix that on the recording. (laughs) And to the angel in the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we have seen with the other churches, Jesus begins with an affirmation. And I don't want to, and it's a strong one, so I don't want to kind of just blow through it too quickly. He says that they have love, they have faith, they have servant hearts, they are enduring. These are all the kinds of things I think we'd love to hear Christ say about our campus and our church that we're loving and faithful and servant-hearted. And he also says that they are doing better now than they did at the start. The latter works are better than the first. That they're essentially maturing. That they are progressing forward in the faith, which I think is a significant compliment. And it's something that we as a campus are going to be thinking about a little bit more uh, this year. You know that our motto, do you know our motto? It's on our mugs. Spread, grow, mature. I don't know if that's a motto or a mission statement. Spread, grow, mature. And I think over the last year, we've done a lot of thought about growing and a lot of thought about spreading. And and of course, there's going to be, even though you have these three words, there's going to be times where different ones are emphasized in different ways. 
And so we've done, I think, some focus on um, growing and spreading. This, it's time for us, I think, to think a little bit more about our maturity as a campus. Many of you have come in the last year. There's some maturing in about how do we incorporate one another into the fellowship? How do we incorporate into serving? How do we incorporate into caring for one another? Those are all aspects of maturity. We have 8 West 3rd, this new space that we're um, working to use for the good of Wilmington. And there's a lot of growing and spreading that will come from that space, but us overseeing that space requires maturity. It requires time and effort and thought on our part to figure out how to use this space, how to curate this space, how to be responsible with this space is all going to be aspects of our maturity. And so I'm going to be encouraging you today and in future weeks to be thinking about sort of your maturity um, trajectory. And are you more mature than you, have, than you were a year ago? And you can think about this sort of personally in your own walk, but also in your way that you interact with our um, community. It may be that over the next few months is, is when it's time to say, I'm going to make that step of membership, or I'm going to take that step of baptism that I've never taken before, or I'm going to step into a leadership role, or I'm going to step into a serving role that's, that shows myself to be more mature than I had been a year ago. And so even as individuals and as a campus, I think we want to be continually moving towards maturity I can't imagine that we ever want Jesus to come and say, well, you're doing just about as good as you did last year. You are just as good as you were five years ago. That doesn't seem like the highest of compliments. I think we'd like Jesus to say, your current works are better than your last. You've been maturing. And I think that's a significant compliment that the church in Thyatira receives. But, as with the other churches, there is a significant critique. There's an issue that cannot be overlooked. And friends, it's a name that you thought you were done with last August. When we finished studying Elijah's life, you probably thought we're done with Jezebel. But here she is again. Now, it's unlikely that this woman in the church in Thyatira, was named Jezebel. But when Jesus sees her and sees her actions, she is a Jezebel by his reckoning. Jezebel had, even by this time, was functioning in the same way that if I were to say, well, you're a Benedict Arnold, we would say, oh, that means there's some kind of traitor. Or if I were to say, oh, man, you're, you're a regular Einstein. I'd be saying, you're a genius. If I just were to say, you're a regular Jezebel, that's not a compliment. <laughs> you should not thank me for saying that to you. Because like Benedict Arnold equals traitor and Einstein equals genius, Jezebel equals enemy of God. If you remember back in the time of Elijah, it was Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, who already had huge issues when it came to his spiritual life. He marries Jezebel, who was from the region of where Baal worship flourished. And when she married Ahab, she brought Baal worship with her into Israel and created a myriad of problems, confusion, watering down the faith, punishment. She chased down God's prophets to kill them. 
She was a liter- not literal, she was a figurative thorn in Elijah's side for his entire life. She equals enemy of God. So when Jesus is walking through the church of Thyatira and he says, you tolerate that Jezebel woman, we know that just that moniker is a condemnation. And what this Jezebel in Thyatira was doing had some similarities to the first Jezebel. Remember the pressure that these Christians would have had around them by the guild uh, culture for both idolatry and sexual immorality, the pressure that they felt at this time. And the solution by the Jezebel group is clearly some theology that said, we can be involved in that on Saturday night and still come to worship Sunday morning. That there's a place for both. That you can be a legitimate church member, a legitimate follower of Christ, and be involved in these guild practices. We can bring them together. Not unlike Baal worship and Yahweh worship way back thousands of years before. So there was this subgroup. It's almost like a rogue life group is how I think about it. Like we had a rogue life group. And they were teaching this theology that was somehow counter to the theology of the larger church. What would we do with that? Well, Christ says what they're doing is worthy of condemnation. And we see that throughout the text. She will be cast onto a bed of suffering. Her and her children, which would have meant her followers, were all going to suffer from this judgment. Jezebel, whomever she was, however, is either oblivious to this condemnation or doesn't care. She knows what it means to be called a Jezebel, but she is rebellious and ungodly and unrepentant, as are her followers. So this is a significant issue that a subgroup in the church had, and and God condemns that subgroup. The rogue life group is condemned by Christ as being ungodly. And it's ungodly, not unlike some of the syncretism and mixing that we saw in Pergamum. But the question is, what was the problem with the church in Thyatira? If you remember back with Pergamum, the whole church seems to have adopted this permissive attitude of like, as an entire church, we're going to adopt the theory that mixing emperor worship into Christian worship, that'll be the plan, we'll put that on our paperwork, that's who we are, and Jesus says, that's not going to work. But in Thyatira, there's only a subgroup doing this, not the whole church. So what is being, what is the critique given to the church about this subgroup? Well, if you look back at verse 20, you'll see. But I have this against you, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. What does Jesus have against them? It is this, you're letting this happen in your church. 
You're letting this rogue group exist and you're either dealing with it by silence or you are verbally affirming it. We don't know which one Thyatira was doing, but they certainly weren't working against it. You're letting this happen. This seems to be the shadow mission is that the church of Thyatira was tolerant. There's no way to get around that there's some, from this passage, that in some way or another, there is a wrong way to be tolerant. There is some wrong way to be tolerant. There is some kind of tolerance if made our mission actually leads us away from Christ. Notice the condemnation. You are tolerant of Jezebel. And that's the condemnation. Now, ironically, in our culture, that would be the compliment. Nice work. You were tolerant of Jezebel. But Jesus says, no, no. You were tolerant of Jezebel. Which brings us back to our opening scenarios. Is tolerance good? Is tolerance bad? Are we supposed to be tolerant? What do we do with this, especially in a culture that's so confused about tolerance? I think we've become confused, and I'm, I feel like, and maybe I don't want to cast my assumptions upon you, but I feel like if any of us were in a conversation, in a public situation with work friends or non-Christian friends, and the question of tolerance comes up, we get nervous because we're not quite sure where this is heading. And we feel like this could be dangerous, shaky territory in trying to figure out how to express whether or not we're tolerant or not. And so I fear we become silent. And in a lot of ways, silence is the kind of tolerance that can be deadly. It can certainly be spiritually deadly. So I'm going to ask us just for a second to widen out from the passage and talk a little bit about tolerance, and then we're going to move back into the passage to apply it. So I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't think I can exaggerate, I think, the importance of this issue for us as Christians to be able to navigate this question of are we tolerant or are we not? Or is it both somehow? So wide angle. The root problem, I think, with the tolerance discussion is that the culture has been attempting to redefine tolerance. They've been putting a new spin on tolerance that I think we need to be aware of. So let me first show you what I would consider and what is considered the classic definition of tolerance. By classic, I mean since Greek philosophy times forward. Tolerance is something like this. The willingness to accept the existence of opinions or behavior that does not, one does not necessarily agree with. So look at it again. The willingness to accept the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. This means that a tolerant person does not attempt to suppress the opinions of others. We do not attempt to suppress the beliefs of others. We do not attempt to kill or harm or hate those who have a different belief than we do. It is to say we disagree, but we live in some semblance of order with one another that shows the love of Christ in our disagreement. Simply put, tolerance accepts that different people will have different points of view. Some dictionaries you will come across still have this definition of tolerance. Others 
Most others have made a shift to something like this. This is the Cambridge English Dictionary. I just got this online this week. Willingness to accept behavior and beliefs that are different from your own, even if you disagree or disapprove of them. Now, at first blush, you might say that's the same thing, but it's not the same thing. It's very different. It's subtle, but it is earth-shattering, and it is at root anti-Christian in its language. Because the second one says, not, I'm not accepting the existence of other beliefs. What am I accepting? The belief. This, this new definition of tolerance that's in the Cambridge Dictionary right now says tolerance means when I'm talking to you and you express to me a different belief, I accept your belief as true or as equally true as my own. Your belief is good. My belief is good. That's what they're trying to tell us tolerance is. The first definition, interestingly, what does it encourage? It encourages dialogue. It encourages discussion. It it encourages, well, let's talk about our beliefs. Let's figure out who's got the stronger, who's right, who's wrong. It, It encourages dialogue. It encourages critique and discussion and debate. And, get this, the first one encourages the changing of minds. The first one encourages potential conversion. The second definition stops all discussion, ends all debate, ends all chance at mind-changing or conversion because it, it insists that tolerance means me saying to you that your belief is already valid. Your belief is already good. Your belief is already as equally true as mine. D.A. Carson has a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and he puts it better than I. So let me just throw this quote up here for you. This new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another person's position means believing that the position is true, or at least as true as your own. We move from allowing the free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of all opinions. We leap from permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree to asserting that all beliefs and claims are equally valid. So notice what I put in highlighting there, new tolerance, Believing the position to be true, acceptance of all opinions, asserting that all beliefs and claims are equally valid. And Cambridge's definition I just showed you is not an isolated one. Let me look, this is all from this week. Uh, Dictionary.com defines tolerance as a permissive attitude. Merriam Webster says it's a sympathy or an indulgence of other beliefs. And my personal favorite from yourdictionary.com tolerance is being patient understanding and accepting of anything different. Tolerance is the willingness to accept anything different. That, my friends, is a new definition of tolerance. You can imagine that there's a myriad of problems. I'm just going to mention two with this new definition. One logical, I would say, and the other one more theological. Here's the first problem. That new definition of tolerance in our culture and in any culture is selectively applied to morality and spirituality because it does not work anywhere else. You may have heard there's a football game this afternoon. (laughs) 
New England Patriots versus some other team. Eagles. There you go. I want you to imagine that in the game later today, that Nick Foles takes the snap, he steps back, a defender from New England dives over the line, and helmet-to-helmet hits Nick Foles. Nick Foles goes down, penalty flag. The ref says, unnecessary roughness, helmet-to-helmet hit. I want you to imagine that defender standing up, walking up to the ref and saying, my definition of helmet-to-helmet is maybe different from yours, and my belief is that helmet-to-helmet hits are not a penalty. And you're actually being pretty intolerant of me right now. (laughs) Do you think that the ref's going to be like, oh, thank you for pointing out the error of my philosophical ways, and pick up the penalty? Because what's the option? Here's the result. The ref will say, it is a penalty by my belief. The defender will say, it is not a penalty by my belief. And are they both supposed to say, well, you're both right, we're both right? Because what happens? There can't be a game. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for everybody's belief system to be equally right. Can you imagine a society where we had our own definitions of what a stop sign means? What if we had our own definitions of what trespass... Can you go to work tomorrow at 10.30 and have your, your boss say, you know, you're three hours late, and you say... I have a different interpretation of clocks. (laughs) I believe in a different clock than you believe in. They are, and you, you you cannot say, and you're being intolerant of me. They'll say, you're fired, right? It does not work in any other arena. And, but, but we know why we're trying to make it work in the spiritual arena, because people want to do what they want to do. So they come up with this, this new tolerance that doesn't work anywhere else, and they try to apply it to spirituality. But for us, who hopefully have the spirit of the truth in us, will say, if it's not working anywhere else, it's probably not a good philosophy for anywhere. And that, my friends, is the minor problem. There's a bigger problem with the new tolerance, particularly for us as Christians. And that is the new tolerance definitionally undermines the truth of the gospel And it undermines our mission to invite people into it. If the gospel says Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord, the new tolerance asks us to do this. It asks us to look at another person and say, there is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing incorrect about your beliefs. So therefore, you do not need a Savior. It asks us to look at someone and say, your truth is correct and as true as mine, so there's no need for you to submit to a Lord. You can be your own God with your own truth. Notice how this new tolerance does not even allow us that earlier song that said, we'll shout it. He is Lord. He is God. We'll shout it. The new tolerance says, no need for that. Don't bother with that. Matter of fact, you're intolerant if you do that. The new tolerance is anti-truth and therefore anti-Christian. We must understand this new tolerance and we need to work against it. Here will be the effect. Our culture will wrongly and cruelly 
and unfortunately call us intolerant. When we say to someone, I believe that your moral system is faulty and broken and I would like to talk with you about it and share with you some things I understand from the Bible, they will say you are being intolerant of my beliefs. And if they say that, then so be it. Because the other option is that we give up the truth and we give up the mission to tell the truth. If we're called intolerant, which we may be, We simply join a long history of followers of Christ who have been called this in different ways and different times. Including those in Ephesus and in Pergamum and Thyatira. We're always going to be told by our culture, as were they, to accept and appropriate and approve their behavior. The culture is always going to ask for our approval. So the new tolerance is nothing new. The culture will say, get on board with us. Go with the flow with us. Be tolerant and tell us that we're doing the right thing. Better yet, join us. Do what we're doing as an affirmation of our beliefs. In short, the essence of this wrong kind of tolerance is this. The wrong kind of tolerance has the goal of affirmation. The wrong kind of tolerance simply wants me to tell you that you're fine. What you believe is fine, what you're doing is right, and that you're all good. Because what is tolerance? It's accepting anything. But there is a biblical tolerance. There is a right tolerance, but it has a different purpose, and I'll close us with this. The essence of biblical tolerance is not affirmation, but repentance. Did you notice that even in light of Jesus saying, you have tolerated Jezebel in the wrong way, we see that Jesus has tolerated Jezebel in the right way? Notice that he says, I have given her time to repent. What is that but tolerance? What is that but Jesus continually in some way or another to Jezebel and to her group, he continually brought to her the opportunities and the understanding and the truth she needed to repent. He's waited, he says. Jesus said, I gave her time to repent Jesus has given her the right kind of tolerance, and that is the kind of tolerance we all should be showing as Christians. It is a tolerance not of affirmation, but of repentance. It is saying, I will walk with you, but I will not affirm what you are doing. Do you see that? I will care for you. I will love you, but I am not going to bless your activity. I will be your friend, I will be your comrade, but I am not going to affirm what you are saying is true. But as people are walking towards Christ, we walk with them. Thyatira was allowing a wrong theology to exist and be taught. They were not willing to call out wrong for wrong. They weren't willing to call out that which was dangerous. They wanted in their words or in their silence to hug everybody. 
But we might imagine Jesus saying, you might be good at hugging, but you're hugging wolves who are going to tear apart the fellowship. Are we tolerant? Well, we're tolerant towards repentance. We're tolerant towards change, towards discovery, towards truth. And we are most tolerant with each other. We are most tolerant in care. In, in, in order for us to have community, we must be tolerant of one another's foibles, mistakes, cold shoulders that we think we received, stupid comments we make of, around, you know, just the, the kind of things that we have to say. But I love that person. I know their heart. And I know that they're moving towards repentance. And so we love and we care. Now, we don't affirm rebellion. But even there, we say, as Jesus said, we give time to repent. The right kind of tolerance leads one another to repentance. And as so with those outside of our fellowship. The new tolerance does not allow us to ask for repentance. But we embrace the, the tolerance that says, I will not hate, I will not force, and I will not reject you, but I cannot affirm what you believe. What is the church to do in Thyatira? It closes simply with this in verse 25. Hold fast to what you have. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to truth. Hold on to the mission of sharing the truth with those around us. The church in Thyatira must hold fast to the truth and hold fast to the gospel And so must we. Amen.